0: At the S&P, the stops. This IS This Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is officially AAA rated. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the doctor is in the house, Anirban Mahanti. How are you, Doc? I'm very AAA rated. Yeah. <laughs> I almost <laughs> feel do, I actually
1: like a AAA battery. Oh, AAA battery. Yeah. Like you know like a AAA battery, a battery? Yeah, okay.
0: Energizer bunny kind of? Energized, yeah. I love it. You're up and... This is going to be a great podcast. Fool's Doc is called early. If it sucks from here, apparently it's my fault. All right. <laughs> let's get on. Triple A Let's get on with it, mate. Uh, we are, we've we got a massive amount of news and a massive amount of mailbag, as always. Let's kick it off with a story that just won't go away. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash <sighs> triple M. Mate, we're going to have to talk about coronavirus. Yes, again. Uh, it is the story that won't go away, And to be fair. Look, I don't love talking about it. I'm sure our listeners are probably sick of hearing about it, except that the circumstances are changing so regularly that the, literally the playing field is 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 changing daily, weekly. Um, we, we can't not talk about it. There's so much going on. The the, the new news this week, um, again, we're doing this on Thursday morning, so goodness knows what it'll be by Friday afternoon. But as we speak, the news is that panic buying is officially back in Victoria. Woolies and Coles have put limits back on purchases. Um, toilet paper again in short-ish supply. God love them. Uh, and panic selling is also back. Overnight, our time, the S&P fell 2.6%. A massive new coronavirus outbreak in Texas. The numbers in South America, mate, are off the charts. It's it's a story that, you know, I, so what I wanted to talk about really was where are we Generally, but also, I wanted to have a quick chat about where we are as a country, as an economy. Given that you know we're we're obviously a global citizen, both both in terms of you know the, our approach, but also our links with the rest of the world. On the flip side, maybe just maybe we're taking things too much to heart here, in the sense that yeah, you know, yes, we're we're doing it tough, but we're doing it better than, gee, you know, probably ninety percent of the world's population, quite literally, if we, if we do it by numbers, um, and certainly you know, probably one of the better. Developed countries, in terms of our, and again, whether it's luck or good management, the reality is our case numbers just tiny. So <laughs> let's just try and break it down. Um, big growth in case counts around the rest of the world, and unfortunately in Victoria. Where are we sitting? What? How do you see the world, Australia, in the context of the coronavirus this week?
1: Okay, that's a lot of questions. It at, is. That in, in was so, the first one. Okay, <laughs> so here's here's what I think. I think. Uh, the expectation I think we okay, I'll rephrase. The <laughs> setting the expectation that we're gonna have zero virus, yeah. I think is the wrong expectation. Right. And if that expectation is set and if that's the goal, I think that's a bad idea. That's okay. not gonna happen. Um, I just don't think it can happen. Mm-hmm. Um because there's always going to be some cases. And the moment you, you know, like, I mean, if you think that I'm to, if you think of it as sequentially, I'm going to get to zero. I'm going to have no cases for some time. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to open the economy and then I'm going to hope that there are going to be no, no uh, cases. Well, that is just pipe dream in my view. Right. Um, now, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I think that, you know, there might be virus lurking somewhere mm. that, you know, that would want to get out and then, you know, it manifests and then it's going to infect someone and it's going to spread. Mm. Um, that's what viruses do. If, right. if it was that simple, you know, we would have no viruses. Um, so I think that's that's number one. Number two thing I think uh, is that I think the moment any economy opens, I think we should expect the case numbers to go up.
0: Right. When we say opens, do you mean opens to travel or just simply opens as in allows things like cafes and restaurants?
1: And yeah, like process? when I say open, yeah. yeah okay. You know, basically, yeah. you know, go from quarantine, yeah, okay. stay at home to yeah let's you know have five people in the cafe to let's have 40 people in the cafe. <laughs> yeah, right, well, I right. mean, you know, um, it's going to happen, yeah. right? And, and the reason you're going to have now, I call case count, I've, I've been calling case count a bogey now for some time. So mm. Case count is a bogey in my view. Case count now has, is, is a bogey because, yes, the number of tests that are being done now versus that was being done three months back, mm. there's a huge difference, not just here, but globally. The total, you know, the the testing has ramped up. So we'll do more testing. You're going to find more cases. Yep. Yes. So that's true. So I think that's the bogey. I think what should be watched is what is the hospitalization. Right. How many people are landing up in hospital? How many people are sick? And I think the, you know, if I had a suggestion, if I could be actually running this show, uh, my suggestion would be that I think the messaging should not be around case counts. The messaging should be around if you're feeling sick, stay at home get tested yeah, do right. not do not go around and even even if you're feeling sick because you have fever or you know you think you have the flu but not covid mm. just stay at home um i think that the messaging around the simple things that can be done should be the focus instead of the messaging that oh we're going to get this to zero and then <laughs> i think that is where i think is the is the problem so
0: right.
1: uh, it doesn't surprise me that there's outbreaks it doesn't in fact i would almost predict that there'll be more outbreaks 2 weeks after the school holidays yeah okay because, I mean, that's what happens. I mean, yeah, you know, right, the right. more people travel, the more there's going to be stuff that's going to be happening. People, If other people are staying at home, makes well, sense. you know, you can make a choice. You want to stay at home and not do anything? Uh, I, I think, as I've said before too, the whole point of the quarantines and the stay at home was to reduce the peak. Yes. It's not elimination. Yep. It was to reduce the peak. Reduce the peak, get your systems ready, get testing there, you know, get people to have a better understanding, buy yourself time, Yeah. right? And- and i think those things have happened i think so I, I think forgetting the basic things and then going to that strategy is not so yeah so i think you know uh, i i'm not that concerned what i would be concerned if i saw a huge uh, uptake in hospitalization, uh-huh. huge uptake in surges, especially those that, you know, are um, uh, untreatable or not being treated or going onto ICU. We have zero ICU cases now, right. Right, as far as I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's zero ICU cases. Hospitalization is down, I think, everywhere uh, where there's testing is happening. So, I, I think this is sort of the natural course and this will be the natural course until there is a, um, a vaccine um That's what what I think. And Mm -hmm. then the market is going to be jittery because, you know, well, uh, there's more cases and clusters are news, right? Nobody's going to tell, nobody's going to say, oh, look, the death count is low or the (laughs) death count is not increasing at that rate or because that's good news, right? right, Uh, Nobody's going to say that, you know, we only had one death, uh, right? And again, I'm not saying that, you know, that debt is not important. What I mean is that, you know, it's not like, you have to weigh the relative impact, yeah. right? And I think so, that's what I think. I mean, you know, I think we should be focusing on those aspects.
0: I think that's the hardest part for me is in the messaging is that it's very hard. Look, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I take my um, brickbats happily at our politicians when they deserve it. I think the polys generally of either party, of state and federal persuasion, um, they got a tough job because they had to come out and and, and pretty much do the, the fire and brimstone stuff early on just to make sure we are all knew and to justify the really relatively draconian and largely you know unprecedented sort of restrictions that we had. And so now you're in a place of, as you say, going from this is all terrible, any case is bad, we've all got to do everything we can to stop this thing, through to now trying to convince people that a little bit... It's not okay, but a little bit might be the, the best of, of the bad options. Um, we'll take a little bit of COVID, we'll take a little bit of better economy. There are, as I've said many times, COVID policy is not health policy, health policy is not public policy. There's there are impact economic and even even, you know, health-wise, both mental and physical health of being isolated of, of losing jobs. I mean, there's a there's a much bigger policy story. It's a really nuanced story that I don't I'm glad I'm not SCOMO. I'm glad I'm not, you know, state premier. I'm glad I don't have to try and talk exactly as you've just said. That story through, which is, and it's you know it's kind of real politic. It's literally because you know we 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 have three hundred people die on the roads every year. We could stop that tomorrow by stopping all driving, but we don't. We implicitly accept a degree of honestly deaths and injuries, which is again like a it's a really difficult conversation to have out loud. But that's just the reality, right? And at some point, I'm, I, I don't know I don't know how you do it with with a virus. But as you say, if if eradication is not possible, then we are now in the in the case of how do we best manage its existence and without destroying the economy, with all of the much bigger, frankly, and as, as, as kind of second and third order as they are, much bigger health implications. If we have 15% unemployment for three years, we'll have many more people die of suicide or malnutrition or, or hunger or uh, you know not having enough, literally, shelter. I mean, those things are really meaningful. That actually may eclipse the, the death count from COVID. So it is a really difficult policy conversation and policy communication, I think, for the, for the guys in charge.
1: Yeah, like I mean, I totally agree with that. Like, I mean, actually, I read a statistic uh, from the UK, which which actually blew my mind. So they, they said of the 45,000 deaths at the point where it was done, mm. 30,000 were COVID-related. Okay. 15,000 were not COVID-related, mm. but caused because of COVID.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, right. Right. So, yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. this is the
1: person that couldn't get to the hospital. This is the person that didn't seek treatment. This is the person that didn't do this. Man. This is the person that got, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. There's, there's that real cost, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so So, you know, again, it's very hard. And, that, and I, I, I I agree. I like it's really difficult. It's a tough conversation. It's a tough right? conversation. But, you know, like I was in the very beginning, I was saying that you need should close. I was a very strong supporter mm. of closing. And the, mm. the reason I think my viewpoint at that point was that you want to control the, the surgeon, you want to get ready. Yeah. Now that we have done all that very well, I think we can't, We it, there's an economic cost, mm-hmm. there's a human cost mm-hmm. uh, and we need to balance it. And I think the messaging really needs to be that everyone, whoever is sick, stay at home, yeah. get tested, yeah. Yeah. do everything that you can isolate and then you know get your results and stuff. Don't go around. But you, if we can't expect to get to zero, and mm-hmm. then you know we're going to open, and then yeah, we're going to stay yeah, closed forever until like there's a vaccine, I think that that we've almost become we have, the conversation now seems to be like a very sequential conversation. Yeah. Whereas it doesn't have to be a sequential conversation, right? I mean, um, I mean you know it's it's all a relative thing, right? Is the situation in mm-hmm. Melbourne mm-hmm. Uh, bad? Yes. Is the situation in Melbourne bad relative to everywhere else? No, it's fantastic. Right, I mean, right, you know, right. the situation in Melbourne is actually fantastic yeah. if you compare
0: it with many other places. Anyone, every, almost the rest of the yeah. world, will take Melbourne's problems so, if, so, I, if I could. Yeah. So exactly.
1: Yeah. So I think. Uh, so therefore, I think we you know you need a little bit of balance, and of course, that's all I'm going to say. And I don't have to make the so I can just say stuff. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> so, well, that's yeah, that's the story. Right? I mean, that's where we are. Um, the. It was a fascinating. I heard during the week actually was talking to um, well, I won't name drop, but I was on I was on two GB um and I think maybe three uh, AW Money News last night, uh, so Wednesday night, and before me was a guest talking about the fact that toilet paper runs are not unlike bank runs, and I thought it was an interesting kind of approach. So just kind of moving to the current situation of the the. the the psychological impacts, right? If you see that the April sales, just to, to change a little bit, the April sales numbers for almost every retail enormously, down enormously. I think total retail was down 18% in the country. May was back up 17%. And yeah, to some degree, that was absolutely the fact we closed the economy and then started reopening in May. The rest of it though seems almost more psychology than the actual physical availability of products to purchase. There's some sense that we kind of all freaked out in April and we kind of all just got back to business in May. And, um, with that, yeah, yes, there were changes to opening, opening to close. All that stuff is true, but it did seem pretty kind of, you know, like we kind of just got used to after the shock. The shock, we off. We kind of just got back to back to business, back to work.
1: Yeah, like I mean, you, you know, the thing is that if so, like our society is very consumer driven, right? Mm. Well, to a, that sounds bad. Actually, <laughs> it's no, to a large extent, yeah, yeah consumer no, yeah. Right. And that sounds very materialistic, but yeah. it is consumer driven. I no, think it's true. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> And so in April you said you can't do anything; you just stay at home, right? right, right, right. So I mean, what did we do? We bought more stuff from um, from grocery stores because, well, that's what we got to do, correct, correct. right? And and then you know if you think about the support and the stimulus, and it's just you know whether it's here or anywhere else, I mean, there's stimulus, uh, the stimulus money that's there that's not being spent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and people also, you know, are not able to spend what they are usually used to spending. Well, right. So therefore, they're going, you know, they're going to spend when they, you know, the time comes. I mean, the the thing I think need, that's need to be realized here is the economic impact that we are having. And this yeah. is, I think, where it gets interesting. The economic impact we are having is self created. It's not a financial problem. Yeah right right. It's not it's not. A, in fact, there is an oversupply of money because yeah, yeah. Uh, every reserve, uh, re, you know, reserve <laughs> bank or central bank has basically said, okay, I'm yeah, going to just yeah, throw yeah. whatever I've got <laughs> at you, like the whole kitchen sink, or uh, maybe double yeah. the kitchen sink yeah, yeah. at you, so that you know stuff stays alive, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is not a financial problem. It's not like the financial markets have choked. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's that we have physically stopped. Saying, don't go to the store, don't go to the cafe. Right, we are not right, going right. to let any foreigners come in to yeah. have a tour. You know, go to the Gold Coast and enjoy the water. Right? We've basically yeah. said, don't do that. Yeah. So we've created the problem, and as we open, yeah. I would expect stuff to get back to normal because it's not yeah. like there's no financial shock in yeah, that yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which is very different from a GFC type scenario yeah. where, um, where
0: well, money evaporated. Where well, money yeah. evaporated <laughs> because of you know. Yeah, yeah. Right.
1: However, what I would, I would say is that if we if we continue along this path for too long, mm. we will create a problem. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. So if we continued like this for like six months, eight months, a year, like you know, okay, you know, this is the new normal. Mm-hmm. Well, then, mm-hmm. then we, you know, I think we will we will be creating more problems. Yeah. by just doing that. So that's I yeah. think the balancing yeah. act that needs to be done.
0: That's the hard part, uh, and it is difficult, as I said, because of the way we've we've as a as a society, we we, we went so hard on the message early on having to wind that back and then ask people to be nuanced about it is a, a tough ask. Um, mate, we are okay. Everything is okay. We are now officially, or still, more to the point, triple A rated, according to the rating agencies, Moody's. Now, the headlines screen that and you kind of go, yeah, that's good. No one, no one wants to be told they're terrible. Everyone wants to be told they're great. So pat ourselves on the back. And then I remembered that Moody's also uh, were the ones who rated the collateralized debt obligations, the CDOs that went absolutely belly up during the GFC and caused the whole palaver. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm never quite sure whether I should really pay attention to ratings agencies. It's always nice, as I said, to get a positive result. But man, when you look at the stuff that was AAA rated during the GFC, it doesn't exactly fill you with confidence. That being said, the US is still, I think, AAA, or double AA or AA plus or something. So we're better than them if we want to take a bit of a, uh, a victory lap as a nation. More importantly, what does it, What does that actually mean for us? What does it mean for the economy? Is it relevant at all? What what should we take from what Moody said about the Australian government's credit rating?
1: Uh, well, well, as you said, it's you know, uh, we should take it with a bit of a grain of salt. <laughs> this is what I, I think it has meaningful impact for um, for government lending, mm. right? So, or not lending, but I, I mean government borrowing. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, so when the government is issuing debt that um, other people are buying, I think it has an impact. Mm. Um, also, it has an impact for our banks, which are uh, you know borrowing overseas, and mm. it's the, the flow on effect. I think. The credit rating actually has the least impact, I think, for Mm. the U.S. government because they can effectively print money uh, given that the dollar is sort of the trade currency of the world. Mm. Um, But for everybody else, I think the AAA rating has some impact, I think, you know. Not a huge impact, but I think Mm -hmm. has some impact. Um, I believe Canada lost... Uh, one of the A's from its triple A is my it's guess. Yeah, isn't it?
0: Losing eye, Just went down back of the couch, or maybe you know the treasurer's yeah. desk drawer somewhere. Or yeah. So I mean, that's <laughs> that's what
1: I think. Well, you know, again, it's good. <laughs> good news is good news, yeah. but um, probably not a huge dial mover. Mm. Um, some dial mover.
0: <laughs> it's a, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, look. So a couple of things. I think there's, there's some there's some relative reality to it. Uh, uh, that you know they they are. There is there is a question of you know how are you rated compared to other people. That's always a useful idea just to get a sense of how ready or otherwise someone else thinks we are. Um, Initially, they called out the economy, the institutions, and the governance, which I thought was kind of again, if you want to be known for something, that's not a bad trio of things to kind of have in your back pocket as as things will you know kind of shore up the economy and keep things going. That was a positive. It does, as you mentioned, impact the cost of borrowing so there is a real impact of losing that triple a rating in theory now hard to see the us has actually suffered from its rating downgrade but in theory that does hurt you and again if you're not the world's biggest economy but you're kind of a you know and also ran down the other side of the world you kind of don't need that against the black mark against your name you want you want to have a rating to say hey things are okay we'll be all right um let's kind of get on with it i think that was that was for me that was the that was the important thing It was almost the intentional reputation piece not because I mean, we all got ego right we all want australia to be seen well but Again, the financial impact of that, the, the reality of you know, how trusted is Australia as a country, as a, as a government, as institutions. Um, it's kind of important, right? It's, it's necessary to, to understand exactly where things are at, how people perceive us and how they're prepared to deal with us. It would have been a decent blow to lose that in the context of, of coronavirus. Not, not even really unreasonable, but just a blow in a relative sense um, that moves to say, hey, these guys potentially are in trouble when confidence is so important. We've just talked about that a couple of times. It's, a, it's an important one. Mate, let's move on. Speaking of <laughs> speaking of AAA ratings and raising debt. Good old Qantas, mate. Now, you and I are fans of Qantas. Uh, Qantas is an advertiser of this program from time to time. Um, That being said, we won't pull any punches nor will we give any special treatment either way uh, to an advertiser just because they happen to advertise. Um, We do like Qantas as a brand. We've said that before. Before we were actually a uh, a, a received sponsorship Uh, and advertising from Qantas.
1: I was going to say that, that, you know, look, I have said that I love the brand Qantas and if possible, I would fly Qantas wherever I can unless they really charge me through the roof. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the brand. I love what they do, um, and this has got irresp- You know, they became a advertiser much later. Actually, I was I was positively delighted were. that you they're, were. they're uh, <laughs> re- advertising for them. But this has got you know whatever I'll say has got nothing to do with uh, my brand feelings.
0: For them. So so do check out Connor's business rewards. That being said, completely separate to that they've got $1.9 billion worth of problems this morning. They're going to raise that much in debt, uh, effectively straight out debt from institutional shareholders. Sorry, equity debt. There we go. Equity from institutional shareholders and the public, the current shareholders, $1.9 billion. Now, this comes on the heels of the company only a couple of months ago, maybe not even that long, having raised debt against the planes. They used the planes as equity and said, look, we'll we'll raise this debt against the aeroplane. You can take it back if we don't pay. That seemed to get them through for a while. And I... So I'm here's, here's where I'm confused, mate. Three months ago, two months ago, Qantas couldn't have expected, surely, to be back in the air so much, so significantly at the end of June. They wouldn't have to raise this capital. If you're if you're doing the numbers, aren't you looking out this way and going, yeah, that's probably a capital raising in our future, aren't you? Like I don't I don't blame them for, for raising debt against the planes. It makes perfect sense, right? If you can avoid diluting shareholders, knock yourself out. And if the lenders will let you do it against a single asset. There's zero downside to it, right? If you don't pay the money, they get the plane, everyone's happy. Um, it's a pretty good business to be in and a very good deal done by Qantas. Did they, though, just simply delay the inevitable more than they needed to? The timing seems interesting so soon after, in relative terms, so soon after that debt raising. I don't know. I, I don't know how they could have not seen this coming. I certainly, I expected there would be a capital raising. We've certainly seen Virgin in trouble. Where's how do you how do you kind of see Qantas's capital raising now? Also, we should say is it sacking six thousand staff? I think is the number. So, you know, really significant personal cost. And again, in the context of JobKeeper actually already being provided by the government, right? So, this is when you're laying people off in the JobKeeper period, that tells you a lot about maybe where Qantas is seeing itself financially, cash flow wise. Alan Joyce saying that things won't go back to normal for years is the is the phrase he used. What's your take on on the Cornus News?
1: Well, uh, I think what they're doing is is probably smart. I expect a lot of the travel companies to be doing exactly what these guys are doing. Mm. And and the reason for that is simple. If you can avoid, um, you know... uh, Issuing equity when mm. your share price is absolutely rock bottom, mm. um, yeah, right. then you have s- helped yourself a little bit. Yeah. All right. I mean, if you if so, I was just checking the chart. I mean, Qantas hit like two dollars, right? If it had to mm-hmm. raise at two dollars versus now at around four dollars twenty, right. that makes a material, material
0: difference. Will be double amount of shares, right, exactly, for the same cash. For yeah. the
1: same cash, it makes a material difference. So I think you know some of that is just I think all travel companies. Mm. Will have to raise cash. Mm. It, those with poorer balance sheet situations, because they're all going to run out of cash. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. is the given fact. Yeah. Um, and that's again, you know, largely because of self-inflicted. You know, there's no travel happening. Yeah. Right. And it is right to assume that travel is not going to get back to normal um, for for a long time. Right. Then the the yeah. So. Mm there's international travel, there's domestic travel, international travel is, you know, is basically zero right now other than repatriation flights. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what would Qantas do? I mean, this is what you do. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, the travel industry is basically in what I call toasted situation. <laughs> um, if, 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 yeah, and, and travel chairs are, they've basically toasted for the time <laughs> being. And, yeah, um, yeah I think I mean you know it's good leadership from uh, from uh, Allen he's uh trying to do the best thing he can mm. you know it yeah I mean that's all I can say
0: Yeah <laughs> it's it's interesting to me um so Connor said basically they're going to they they've got 8000 staff now he reckons they'll get to about 15000 literally breaking as we're recording this 15000 by year end if the borders open up so there's there's a meaningful chance to get some people back to work. The company's also saying, though, they don't see international travel before July next year. I think that's a that's a pretty reasonable view, by the way. I, I don't know anyone who... I don't know how you could seriously have expected it much before then, quite honestly, given the circumstances. Um, so to some degree, it's kind of not overly unexpected. I do wonder to some degree, mate, was this always going to happen today or is there a sense that the Victorian news... Kind of just you know, the idea of open borders within Australia and maybe New Zealand, which we we're kind of working towards. I think, you know, to some degree, if, if Victoria hadn't had an outbreak now, um, we maybe would have had national open borders in a couple of weeks' time, maybe, given, you know, effectively NTSA, WA, Tasmania are kind of their own little bubble right now. Uh, Queensland's joining that group, they haven't new cases in ages. I could have imagined, sans that outbreak you know, domestic travel in Australia are effectively going back to normal in, in a case of a number of weeks. It feels like months now. Um, do you reckon that factored in accordance with thinking in terms of the timing or was it always going to happen now and they were just consequential, uh, sorry, they're just concurrent uh, situations rather than being cause and effect?
1: My own assumption is that, you know, uh, domestic travel is going to be essentially at 40, 50% of what it has it was last year. Right. For at least a year. Right, okay. A minimum. Right. A uh, combination of things. I think, you know, you e- e- um, You know, people are going to be worried about getting on the plane. There are going to be outbreaks, um, you know, and I think... partly if the international borders remain closed, mm. there's a psychological factor that's going to yeah, play right. that, you know, well, international, you know, play, we can't go internationally and we'll hear news mm. and that'll play in your mind. Um, so I just expect it to be, you know, 30, 40%, maybe 40% of what it's going to be. So, I mean, yeah, right. I mean not, not just this, I would, if I had to predict, I'd say there's going to be one more <laughs> capital raising. Um, and effectively, unless our international borders open, I think all the travel stocks are going to be doing capital raising mm. um, because, I mean, that's, that's you know you have a cost base and you got to pay for it. That's what I think. Yeah. Um, you know, in yeah. Uh, again, the problem for I think the problem is acute for an airline because an airline that has mm. an international airline has to have a lot of big assets mm. that. You know, can do you know uh, cross-country flights, but you know they're actually designed for intercontinental flights, and Mm. those are basically sitting there. And you probably have leases that you're paying on it. You still have to maintain them um, at least a little bit, I guess. You can do something
0: else, right? You
1: can't get rid of your you know you could get rid of some people, but you can't get rid of your engineers uh, because they might be taken up by someone else. So there's a whole heap of essential costs that they have to maintain. So, Mm I I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think
0: that there's more pain. Mm -hmm. That'll be my guess, but. I think it's a good point. I, yeah, I'm more optimistic optimistic than you are, mate. If if Victoria can get his act together, I can see. I think, you know, we we know that, well, we heard that people rushed back to cheap airline tickets when they were made available. There's a group of people who will travel. I would say regardless, but maybe there are people who are simply less concerned than others in terms of you know uh, figuring they might, as well, they might as well do it. The chance of catching a uh, coronavirus on, on a flight is probably low, at least in their view. Again, Melbourne excluded. If you're flying between, I don't know, Adelaide and Perth or Perth and Brisbane or hopefully at some point, Sydney, um, I, 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 I think we'll probably get... I think new normal gets back to normal more quickly than we expect once people either get to, as you said before, learning to live with it or you know the case counts are low off that we can actually get on with it. I think either way... I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I, I agree with the concern there. I think you know, these are the problem with capital-heavy businesses, right? Like you, if you're a retailer, you can lay off all your staff, close your doors, not pay your rent. You've kind of just got to keep the lights on. That's about it. Um, and certainly, that's what some retailers have done. Flights and it, close a chuck of stores. They're only going to open a portion of those at some future point. Um, Webjet, I saw during the week. I think for the first time I've saw was offering travel deals. Um, They've been doing lots of kind of PR. A great road trips emails or, you know, stuff like that, trying to just keep in people's minds, keep the brand relevant. Um, first time I'd seen, you know, travel, literally flight deals being offered uh, for flights in September, I think it was, maybe some in July as well. So there is some sense of, I don't know, hopefully, hopefully things go back to normal more quickly than we expect. We'll see whether that actually comes to pass. But certainly Qantas is, uh, is not out of the woods just yet. And there is definitely, as you say, a risk of a further capital raising. Before we go on, I want to tell people about your Motley Fool investment service called Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. You guys look for, not the corners of the world, but some higher growth with a bit more risk. Companies, the businesses that you hope are going to be the big winners of tomorrow that have really significant three, four, five, even 10-bag potential, 10-bag or something goes up 10 times in value. Um, that comes with more risk, as I said. You will probably, you guys expect, have a bigger strike, a lower strike rate, which means a few more failures than average. But if you do it well and you are so far, The winners well and truly cover off the losers, and certainly that's been our our experience with the same style of investing. In the US, we can't promise anything directly correlated to that, but. It's one of those things. If you do the, do things the same way, you kind of expect similar ish results. And we hope to do the same thing. So, fools, if you want to join Doc and Kevin at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, I hi- I highly, highly recommend it. Again, no guarantees, no promises. We'll do our absolute level best. We promise that, uh, but we can't guarantee anything. We do think though, this style of investing as has been proven elsewhere, uh, and as Doc's already proven thus far in the service. Is a relatively short life. Um, got a few years under your belt now, mate. Is it three years? It's
1: a little over three. Oh, it's actually no, uh, yeah. So three years and. 25 days because it
0: opened
1: <laughs> June 1.
0: There you go. So, so th- we're recording on June 2. Give Doc a, a three-year birthday present. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and join Doc and Kevin at Motley Extreme Opportunities and as I say every time for a stupidly cheap price. So go and have a look. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Okay, mate, let's go, to, um, let's go to a bit of good news or bad news. Certainly it's growth news. After we've talked about, <laughs> we've talked about Qantas and coronavirus, Amazon – the big juggernaut, the, share, the company I own shares, and I assume you still own shares in the company. Um, it, Doc's not, not here for those who aren't watching this on TV because it's not on TV. Um, the uh, Amazon is planning to open a new distribution centre in Western Sydney, the size of 27 football fields. Now, it's been one of those sleeping giant kind of stories. Everyone was freaked out about Amazon when it first arrived. Everything was going to go to pot. The whole world was over. Um, retail was going to get swept before it. In the event... It's kind of ticked along, okay. kogan has been the big story. Uh, a couple of others. We'll talk about another one in a minute. But Amazon, maybe if you're if you if you're optimist or simply someone who's just watching these things carefully, if you open a twenty-seven football field size distribution center in Australia, you're not planning to go away quietly, are you? Uh,
1: no. Like Amazon is is a fascinating company. I still hold shares. I <laughs> um, haven't actually added to it in in many. Yeah, which, uh, which sometimes actually when I rethink about it, uh, think about it, it, it actually makes me wonder. Uh, but but uh, yeah, so I mean, if you're opening a big distribution center, it looks like you know you want to make a big push um, in in Australia. I mean, Australia is actually an interesting. Country for many American corporations because um, we we have consumption patterns that are very similar to the U.S. Mm. Right in many things and you know, makes sense. We are also similar to the, I guess the U.K. And, and therefore you know if Amazon thinks that they have a meaningful share in the U.S. Uh, you know they may be able to get a meaningful share here. Mm. Um, yes, we are many times smaller than the U.S., but why not? I mean, um, for a big business like that which needs growth, mm-hmm. um, it is going to lo- be looking for growth and. So I guess that's a, that's a way of signalling that we are interested. We are going to increase our commitment to Australian customers. Uh, it's we of
0: warehouse space if you don't get the sales, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, focus of the mind.
1: Focuses the mind. Um, you know, they'll try to push more prime subscriptions. I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, same day shipping and all that. Um, they, I've actually used a little bit of their services, a little more than I usually do during uh, okay. during the quarantine. And you know what I what I found is, they don't offer as much as many sales. On things, yes. as yeah. um, as it uh, calls or Woolies does, like mm-hmm. right? you know, more often than not, you actually end up paying more, yeah. uh, which did bother me. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, I did it because of convenience, but you know, now that yeah. we are going back to uh, back to a shop, there is that question. So I have noticed that they're not as price competitive here. So maybe the warehouse is a way of getting price competitive, which would be interesting from mm. a consumer point of view. It would be very interesting.
0: Mm. I think so. Sure, I think. I'm fascinated by the, the Amazon. Like I'm an Amazon shareholder, as I said. Uh, also, a Kogan shareholder, by the way. And that you know, I don't think it's a winner-takes-all story, but I think you underestimate Amazon at your absolute peril. One thing's been fascinating about Amazon, mate. They seem really they've opened here almost to have something here. It's my sense, right? They've never really pushed hard with actually pricing, you know, promotions. I see much more for their Audible business, for example, here in Australia, than I do for Amazon's retail business in terms of advertising. And there's a sense that if you look at most, I've, I've tried to shop from them before. I think i one or two things maybe from the local shop since I opened here. A lot of it's that marketplace kind of approach that Kogan's also taking where the stuff they're offering is either a questionable quality. It's kind of that, it's the Alibaba style kind of, you know, coming out of China in mass, lots of cheap plasticky stuff or some cases really stupidly highly priced stuff that I have to assume the marketplace seller is just trying to jag, jag a deal from someone who doesn't look any further. It costs nothing to list on Amazon, so why wouldn't you? Um, they, they, as you say, they really... I, I've been a bit disappointed actually as a shareholder, frankly, that they haven't made more of a concerted effort to actually be more relevant in whatever form you want to call that, whether that's price, promotions, and marketing. What, you know, They, they just don't, don't seem to have really pushed hard to, to do it. Either they don't care, uh, they don't know how to, they don't feel like they can or maybe there's just a bit of a toe in the water, we'll kind of you know, set up the infrastructure here and then when we're ready, we'll really push hard.
1: Yeah, I think it's hard to know. I mean, here's the thing, there's a, a, a company that's operating across so many different geographies, right? Um, if you're operating across so many different regions, maybe in priority order, Australia is further down the list yes, I think that's right. right because I mean I we're said, small than
0: California right so <laughs> yeah like you have, you have 15 20 times
1: the yeah, our e-commerce market overall yeah. Yeah. Uh, is probably 20 times less than the size of the US they've got yeah. bigger fish to fry they've got Europe to compete so maybe this is like okay you know it's good to have need to have a footprint it's good to have a global presence but it, it definitely looks like they're not competing that hard um, <laughs> but you know but that doesn't mean that it can't compete. Hard, right? Maybe they're just getting slowly, but steadily the logistics in place, and maybe this is going to change things. Um, Which, as I said, you know, it's it's good for consumers. More price competition means we are going to get stuff for cheaper, uh, like Mm. that. Um, And again, you know, Amazon as retail is just one part of Amazon, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a whole big cloud business that they've got. Yes. Um, So, you know, again, fingers in too many pies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I have a feeling it was a bit of a. um, land grab early on uh, from Amazon. And we'll, we'll see whether this is... I mean, look, that's it. If you're going to open a, a distribution centre that big, you have to, by definition, expect to grow sales. And it's not just going to be drop ship sales, i.e. the stuff that comes from marketplace sellers or they don't need space for that either. Um, they're, they're clearly, clearly looking to try and make it uh, make it big, uh, whether, whether they do and how long it takes is an open question, of course. But another reason for... Australian retailers to be a little bit more concerned, I have to say, if things weren't already bad enough, when you hear that the economy is in, in a funk, people aren't going out shopping. And by the way, Amazon's opening a, you know, whacking great big distribution center. You've, you've got to, I, I feel sorry for him, mate. You got to wake up Sunday and think, oh man, what am I doing? Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. Speaking of online retail, I want to talk to you about retail, online retail more broadly, mate, because... There's a lot of things going on in the online retail space at the moment. We've seen big, big numbers from Temple and Webbs to the online furniture business. Um, Kogan, again, I mentioned we I own shares. Um, sales were up 100% year on year in May. Um, and look, this is not a, t- not a massive business, but not a tiny business either. Um, Accent Group, you mentioned to me this morning, the footwear retailer. Sales growth of 150% online in May. Now, Accent is better known for its physical stores and on uh, same source, I was right, 1.6%. But online sales up 150%, tells you everything you need to know about physical retail and, and online retail, right? The whole, when you're getting you know, mediocre, I mean, same source up 1.6%. I'm going to guess that's probably inflation at least. Okay. I'm going to assume, and this is a grand assumption, so don't take this to the bank without checking it, fools. I'm going to assume that means volumes are probably down because I, I got to imagine the average sneaker probably cost more this year than it did last year. So let's assume that's mostly inflation. Um again, I'm happy to be stand corrected, but even, even even if it's not, 1.6% is effectively marking time in what otherwise should be a growth industry. But online sales of 150%, still a low number, so let's not get carried away. But if if that doesn't, between that, Kogan, Templar, Webster, even premier investments behind J, you know, JJ, uh, JJ's, Just Jeans, Peter Alexander, Smiggle, again, they get online sales growth regularly of 40%, even pre-pandemic mm-hmm. in, in a in an environment where they get you know moderate single-digit sales growth in the physical retail. I think I feel like to some degree, I feel like I'm stating the obvious because we all know that. On the other hand, I kind of want to state the obvious because if you don't actually think about it enough, you maybe miss the big story. It's fine to say, oh, yeah, I kind of get that. If that's not front and center of your investment thesis, though, at least as a consideration when it comes to retail, when it comes to anything that's impacted by technology, I feel like you're probably missing a trick.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, if you're a retailer and don't you don't have significant online plans, I think you're stuffed, mm. right? <laughs> it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, some of these numbers, I think we need to be cautious about a couple of things, right? One is if people needed to buy something and they couldn't buy it anywhere else, mm. well, they're buying it
0: online. Yeah, That's right, one. right.
1: So, it's it's a, there's this old shift of sales, right? You know, you're probably going to, so how much of your physical retail sales have you actually shifted online is yeah. also the question that you need to, yeah, to right. need to address, right? Uh, without taking away anything about the, or you know, the great online sales numbers that are coming through. And, um, I mean, generally though, I'm I'm I am very happy when I see a retailer that is delivering online sales growth because I mean, yeah. in this day and age today, it's not really hard for a business to have an online presence. There are lots of tools you can set up your you know business on Shopify mm-hmm. or whatever you want to, right? Yeah, there are platforms on which you can basically take whole platforms mm. and basically just launch your online sales. Yeah, yeah. right. It's not tough, so. I think not doing it is criminal, and right. doing it well I think is important. And then those numbers basically show that. So I mean, you know, I'm uh, great on this company and, and yeah. good for yeah. their results.
0: Ask me. Let me um, let me kind of drill into that a little bit. You talk about obviously the need for online retail, and, and you know, it's criminal not to be doing it. I completely agree with all that. Do you have a framework to think about winners and losers over over a decade in this space? Um, you know, in one, in one version, so so the Walmart example is interesting, right? Walmart fell asleep, at the, well, it didn't fell asleep, it just chose to be asleep at the wheel. Amazon runs straight past it. Blockbuster chose not to get involved in. It wasn't even streaming, or it was Blockbuster didn't want to do DVD by mail, so they didn't do that. Um, it, you know, so many of these stories are are existing businesses that don't get with the get don't get with the program. On the flip side, if you do get with the program, and Walmart is finally waking up to this, doing some interesting deals at the moment to try and creep their way back into into online retail and be or return as a as a meaningful force does the future belong to the online retailers does the future belong to the pure online retailers sorry. does it belong to those that already have brands that can that can make the transition online is it a bit of both how how are you kind of thinking about the the retail landscape in a you know increasingly e-commerce world
1: yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Like, I mean, I'm not a big retail sort of like I don't invest that much in that space. Yeah. Uh, but I have like I don't know I've have some high level so I'll share some high level thinking here. So, I, I think if you are Walmart or a Walmart equivalent, so the Walmart equivalent here might be someone like Woolies or Colts. Right, right? Right. If you have that scale and size and <laughs> girth, yes. <laughs> then I think you can afford some amount of laziness. (laughs) Yeah, right. So if your balance sheet and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if you basically got, you know, we talked about Moat before. We did.
0: uh, Actually, not before, funnily enough. Oh, not before. We have recorded already. Here's it. A, here's a, here's oh. Doc's doc, doc, <laughs> giving away our secret. Our secret news. Oops. <laughs> um, I'm I was, don't be silly. I'll go about this at the end of the podcast. But I'll talk about it now. Um, this is our last uh, uh, in the moment podcast for a couple of weeks. I'm going on holidays, so I'm going to be away from this Sunday for a couple of weeks. We don't worry. Don't don't stress. We've looked after you. We are pre-recording some content, and one of the ones we've pre-recorded is a really fascinating conversation. At least I enjoyed it. Maybe you. Maybe Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll tell me I'm a liar. Doc and I had about moats, about competitive advantages. So if that's your thing, if you're interested in that as budding or current or experienced investors, maybe you have a perspective, keep an ear out for our special notes edition of Motley Fool Money coming up in a couple of weeks time.
1: All right. So now, now that you know that, <laughs> so it, it, it may, maybe this is a forward reference, so yeah, yeah, which is not right, right.
0: But, but spoiler alert! A
1: spoiler alert! But businesses that have some sort of form of more, I think they can be, they can afford to be. It's not a great idea, but they can afford to be asleep on the wheel yeah. without killing themselves. Yeah. yeah. Right. So Walmart could be asleep at the wheel, and then you know because of its a huge distribution and you know its just sheer size mm-hmm. and its presence in you know so many different parts of the world and in the U.S. They can actually take the time to actually set up their online strategy I think the same would hold here for example for someone like Coles or uh, woolies or even like I mean mm. uh, you know bunnings or West farmers for example as an ex- as, as, as an example right, right. Um, but if you're small mm. you can't yeah. because your balance sheets are weaker you don't have that much <laughs> cash yeah. you Probably live day to day.
0: You got to get it right. and You got to get it right quickly.
1: You got to get it right and got to right, get it right quickly. So I think that's the distinction, right? And and so I mean, there's probably like you know, from an investing point of view lens. Like again, that's not my mm. uh, specialty. Like I, you know, I focus more on higher growth sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. But if if you want like a re-rating type of, you know, that's a silly word to use, but you know, you mm. want a revaluation, mm. or a, you know, you want a company that is a turnaround play, but maybe one to look at is this okay is a woolies turning around or is a coles yeah. turning around because they have the opportunity to turn around and therefore you can bet on that um i think it's like a a possibility and the same thing with you know something like walmart as you as you, as you, as you said mm-hmm. um for all the others, I think like you know, not ha- not doing online is basically suicidal. Yeah, it's basically suicidal. It's like the smaller end. and again, you know how you define small and things like that. Now, uh, I would say that if somebody has a brand, I think that is also a form of strength, and it allows you yeah. a little bit more flex. Again, it depends on how much you know. Everything is a brand, right? But not everything is a Coca Cola. Like, and Pepsi is a brand. Yeah. Coca Cola yeah. is a brand, but. Is Pepsi the same as Coca Cola? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. That's a debate right, right, right. that you can have. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. again, you know, you know, if you have a brand strength, it offers you a little bit of a, you know, protection and ability to. Uh, defer and delay. Mm-hmm. But for small ones, do not delay. And <laughs> and, and pure online, I yeah. think, has a beautiful future, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's online furniture or online everything. Yeah. Uh, I think that has a beautiful future because they're going to be stealing share from mostly, I think, yeah. from these smaller uh, companies, mm. businesses that are not going online quick enough, mm. right?
0: I don't have an online presence that is – is the right presence. If I compare Harvey Norman's online furniture stars with Templar Webster's, for example. Now, Templar Webster's a, a, a recommendation I we as a share advisor for full disclosure. I don't own any shares nor is the full. Um, I don't think, do we? We might own one of our portfolio um, servers actually. I might, no, I might retract no, that comment. No, we don't?
1: No, I think we do. Okay. Uh, probably because we might have recommended it in a... I yeah, The fact I don't service. know that
0: is, gives you good, uh, a good sense that I'm not doing this just to pump up our own tyres. Um, the web the, uh, website, you know, the, the online shopping experience is just phenomenally better. And it's a, you know, online retail is not just putting your products on a website. It sounds obvious again, right, really important, but the companies that get that, that understand it will actually are, are making it work, will we'll have a huge advantage. That that, that sheer reality of, how to do online. I mean, if you look at, I mean, I actually I actually quite like Harvey on. I quite like Jerry Harvey. He's a bit irascible and he's a bit uh, quotable, but I, I don't, you know, I think he's, he's done a fantastic job. He certainly deserves all the plaudits over 40 plus years of, of professional success. But their website still looks a bit 19, well, maybe uh, maybe, two, no, no, maybe, two, maybe 2005, right? Everything's in a box. All the products are there. You can choose them. You can select them. You can search for them. It's all fine. It, all, it works. It's functional, completely functional. You compare that with Templar Webster's website, though, the way they're selling you furniture. The online experience is incredibly different and we shouldn't underestimate that, right? The same as a physical shop, you know, two, two different retail physical stores are very different things. Um, getting it right online is, is really, really important. Interesting to me too, mate, you are talking about the power of incumbency or the power of just simply you know, strength, size, balance sheet. I remember, so I used to work at Woolies way back in the day. My first job out of uni, uh, I, worked in a, I worked in a Woolworths bottle shop as the assistant manager and then I moved into the head office and worked there for a while. And I still remember the bloke who was the guy, literally the guy, doing Woolworths online shopping at that point. It was called Woolworths Home Shop. Now this is more years ago than i like to talk about, but they were there early, right? And they weren't doing much with it, but they were there. And ShopFast was one of the big online brands at the time, Went went broke uh, in a different life. I was an account manager for that. I, I went to a massive – they had this great big office on uh, Circular Quay in Sydney. Overlooking the Quay, I, I kid you not, it was the – so this is bean surprisingly. Um, beanbags on the floors, big floor-to-ceiling windows, beautiful views, cappuccinos everywhere. Like this was just – like this was this was tech. This was, like it was all happening. Um, and they were they were taking the lead. Well, Liz and Coles kind of just, just hung around, just just did enough to be relevant, have an offering, put their toes in the water. They didn't need to get big quickly. And to your point about, well, I mean, the point you 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 um, confirmed it, the, the getting it right and getting it right quickly thing, ShopFast was just early. Like they were they were fundamentally just, in, uh, like a whole lot of companies, just super early. There's nothing wrong with the offering. They just burned too much cash because they couldn't get enough people to use the servers at that point. 99 internet's kind of okay-ish. Um, you, you know, people just weren't doing it yet. And so, you know, they and they went broke, they just ran out of money. The dot com crash happened, they couldn't find any more funders. They went from, like, kid you not, know, a, a flash office, massive plush office in circular key. they were eventually above a Campbell's cash and carry store with two people to a desk. The last time I saw them before, they literally were shut down. And you kind of think, you know, Woolies has got to, and Woolies was there the whole time. Now, coming out the other side, yes, Amazon's going to try and do groceries, Kogan's trying to do groceries, everyone's kind of seeing it as an opportunity, but. Well, these now have twenty years of experience on this stuff. That you know, they've accumulated that without investing too much, investing enough to make it work, using the stores, growing slowly as it made sense. That the power of incumbency, your if you're aware of it, and nimble enough in if, you know, which is an oxymoron for, for a you know <laughs> ASX twenty company, but nimble enough to be able to just turn the tap on when you want to, and ready, to, you know, being there, you know, being able to burn some cash just to be in the game, just to make sure you're at the starting line in the final. You don't have to win your heat. But if you can be in the final, then you've got a chance to win and put, put all the resources at, at your disposal. I thought it was an interesting analogy to how the big guys can do it well when, you know, in the flip side, Walmart just did a horrible, horrible job and were left left in the dust. Um, should we move on? Let's move on. All right. I want to talk about brands again, mate, in a, in a very different way. And this is a very touchy subject. And when I talked about this with you this morning, we both comment, kind of went, oh, it's icky, should we touch it? Um, not because we don't have a view on it. We, we do, and... Uh, you know, listeners will know I, I particularly am not scared of sharing my views on almost anything. Uh, much to my probably uh, – <laughs> my, my PR manager will probably say I don't, but I do. I don't have a PI manager, by the way. Unsurprisingly, given the way I talk about this stuff. Um <laughs> It's in the news this week that Nestle is planning to rebrand its Redskins and Chicos confectionery because of the potential negative connotations of those names for some communities. Um, for those who haven't followed the news, Redskin can often, often be a slur used about Native American people, and Chicos can be, apparently, I think it's in South America, um, a slur for Latin American people. Now, you know, I don't want to get into the. PC, non-PC, change the label, don't change the label. I have a view. Doc, you probably have a view. I imagine this is not the place or the time. And frankly, there's no point alienating your listeners for the hell of it on something that isn't right now super, super valuable. I'm, I, I may talk about it on Twitter over the next week if I, if I get the urge up. But I don't want to talk about it now, mate. This is a business podcast, and so what I want to talk to you about is the implication, the, the, um, the, the reality that companies now find themselves in. We're in an era of social media, an era of, you know. A very it's very easy for a storm to brew up over, I won't say nothing because these aren't nothing issues, but in a way they couldn't have done in the past. And and companies need to be really, you know, particularly global companies, really, really aware of the implications of what they're doing and how they're doing it, what they choose to do with themselves. And so I just want to get your general thoughts about kind of where we are in the world of corporate social responsibility more broadly. Now, there's a whole lot of terms around this. There's ethical investing, corporate social responsibility, there's um, con- uh, was it conscious capitalism? There's a whole lot of labels, right, which basically talk about the way a company exists and is perceived by its community. I don't think this issue was here. it was here ten years ago. It certainly, wasn't here 20 years ago. But now businesses have to really be mindful of you know the value of their brand, the risk to their brand, in a in a hyper vigilant social media world. Just give me your thoughts on on that as a concept in your investing, and and maybe for the companies that are on the ASX or just simply around. The 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 the, again not should they shouldn't they let's leave that aside, as in you know ethically morally, but what are the implications? How do you think about this from an investing perspective when it comes to the companies you're investing in? Yeah,
1: so if if you if like if you're building a brand and you or you have a brand that you don't want to tarnish, I think uh, companies these days have to tread very carefully, as you said, because anything can become a storm, and. Mm, And, and, you know, without knowing what the history is for some branding um, or some advertising that you've done without, you know, it may offend someone in some way. <laughs> um, so I think that's the reality. And companies, I think, are becoming more and more acutely aware of that. Mm. And in a way, I actually don't mind that. I don't mind that because if companies are aware of what their branding position is and that their branding has an impact on how people think or perceive or see. I think mm-hmm. there can be a positive force, and whether or not there should be a positive force is a different thing. But I mean, another. Uh, I mean, I think this becomes very important if you think about what a company is, and mm. and and this becomes important because if you think about what a company's brand really reflects, it really reflects to some extent the people who work in that company. Right. Right. So. In a, yeah, way, yeah, right, right. in a way, in a way, it therefore reflects what those people want to do, mm, what those mm. people are, you know, thinking about the business, and you know what their their future goals and aspirations are. And right. you can use that to some extent to uh, position your investing. Um, all, although, again, you can't make that a sole factor. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's really what I what I think about it. I, I think there are certain things that. I think certain brands try to try to create an image of what they are.
0: Mm.
1: Right. I yeah, am yeah. a purveyor of this thing. <laughs> I want to protect that. Right, right, right. I think this is important. Right. With well, the I basically Makes is the sense. company. Yeah, yeah. And and I think if that becomes a movement, then you can use that movement um right, right, right. as a way to grow your business. Now it sounds cynical that oh I'm have a movement because I, you know I want to grow my business. <laughs> yeah. But it, it the, the converse is also true because you have yeah. a movement of a certain form, you attract a certain type of talent, certain certain type of people, certain driven individuals, and they together form the DNA of the company. So, mm. um, it is a consideration that I I have, but I apply that mostly to big trends okay. and not really to social sort of cultural social cultural issues because social cultural issues they're important, but most often. Um, they're distorted also by news. And they're yeah, distorted yeah. by both the positive and the negative yeah, yeah, side, right? Yeah, so yeah. one side of the news yeah, gets right. um gets played up yeah. and, and the other side isn't because it is beneficial from a clicks point of view to Play one side, right. um, but but you know, like going back to this Nestle. If I'm if I was Nestle, I would do exactly the same thing. I mean, if the you know, why would I court controversy yeah. if I can yeah. avoid courting controversy? Yeah. Then I'm a responsible corporate citizen, and therefore I just do that. And I think that I think from their point of view, I think that the move makes sense. Why get into it?
0: It's funny though, you know. Like I think that's exactly right, except that in this hyper hyper partisan world these days making the change has caught its own controversy by the people who don't think they should have changed the brand. And so we've had people like Senator Matt Canavan out today saying, again, Thursday morning, saying they shouldn't have changed if they don't like it, they should get someone else make the brand. And, you know, there's very much a sense that you simply, you can't take... Maybe that is the point. You, you can't not take a stand, so you might as well take one and, and just wear the fact that you're going to hit either way. You leave it, you get hit. You change it, you get hit. You just kind of kind of weigh out which way you want to, which way the wind's blowing, which way you want to stand. Maybe purely from ethical perspective. Maybe as you say, for the combination of ethics and business reality of hey, you know, who do I want to attract, both in terms of employees and customers, and how do I want that to work? Uh, I, look, I think for me, I I think it's it's a challenging one, right? I think it's really important to understand. Purely, again, taking out the ethics and the morals of it, purely financially. Important to understand how important these things are, right? Philip Morris or Altria, the cigarette company, was the most successful company in the US in, I think, the 20th century from memory, certainly more recently as well, over the previous 50 years. I don't know up, up to what date. It might have been 2015, 2016, something like that. It was the most successful company in the US, right, financially. You can't argue in any way, shape, or form they did anything, to change the way they did business in a positive way. They didn't start going into healthcare. They didn't, they didn't stop making cigarettes. Um, now, they did other things as well. And, I, you know, I don't want to get in an argument about Altria, not with you necessarily, with anyone who wants to defend them. Um, but, you know, to some degree, they made money. Exactly the opposite way, right? They didn't care who they annoyed. They didn't care how they were seen. They didn't care. They just simply made cigarettes for people who wanted to smoke cigarettes and or were addicted to them, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but they simply choose, they chose not to, you know, do anything about it. They simply, this is who we are. This is what we do. We'll keep doing it, make a lot of money doing it. So there are ways to make money in both cases. I think I would just say for what it's worth as an investor, it's kind of trying to work out where is the market? Who are the people who are buying? Who are the people who are joining the company? Doc Doc says, um, are you getting the right people as customers and employees to make money? Make more money in the future than you are now, and for some people the answer is no. Nestle chose, for all of their reasons, not to and to change things. Philip Morris kept making cigarettes because, hey, it was profitable, and why not? And again, we could have a moral and ethical perspective on that, but purely financially, that seems that seems almost arguable that it was the right decision for them and helped them make a a lot of money for their shareholders. So, I got to say, I think you know, I'm. I have my views on certain issues, and I'm happy to see some change on some issues from time to time, uh, without without wanting to delve into the issues themselves. Just because I think that makes some sense, right? It's it's it, yeah, it's always it's always nice, it's always nice to see a company that aligns with your own values, right? That's always that's always good. But again, that's kind of what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, I just would caution people a bit, like I've talked about ethical investing in the past. You know, just because it aligns with your preference as 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 a person doesn't make it a good or a bad investment, nor does it happen the same the same in in the opposite direction either. Mate, I reckon that wraps us up, but how about we come back on Sunday? Oh, we always come back on Sunday. <laughs> That's they're, not new. Okay, fair enough. You're really my surprise, mate.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> but it's we, not a surprise anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we will be back on Sunday, fools, with a special, because we do it, not special because it's unusual, mailbag edition. So come back for that. Before we go, don't forget you can and you should, I think, subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app, or, of course, as our listeners know by now, Doc, we're on podcast one, which is pretty exciting. Now, how many stars should they give us? Six. Six? Yeah. Can you do that? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> give it a try. Only if it's out of six, though. Not if it's out of ten. Yeah. Well, six out of five. <laughs> there we go. Give us a six-star rating if you would, fools. If you can't, at least five. Come on. That's a 20% discount. Um, Seven <laughs> percent Of course. And please leave us a review. Do tell your friends who couldn't use a bit of foolishness in their lives. Hopefully a bit of education, have a bit of fun along the way. And, of course, speaking of foolishness, you can get some to your inbox by joining us at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full Fool on. Full on.